Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. La Cura will take you on a journey at the intersection of health, healing, and social justice. We will engage in conversations about decolonizing our health and reclaiming traditional ways of well-being and healing. We will explore and honor our multiple identities, cultures, traditions, and remedios. This offering is brought to you by Mi Gente, a political home of Latinx and Chicanx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-poor, pro-queer, because our communities are all that and more. everybody. Uh, super excited today to have Nalgona Positivity Pride with us. Um, it's founder Gloria Lucas. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Nalgona Positivity Pride. I've been following the work of this amazing organization, school, community, all kinds of things. Nalgona Positivity Pride is an in-community eating disorders and body positive organization dedicated in creating visibility and resources for Black, Indigenous communities of color. And since 2016, MPP has been raising awareness around the specific needs of Black, Indigenous communities of color through digital media, education, grassroots eating disorders treatment models, and art. Rooted in Chicana Indigenous feminism and the DIY punks praxis, the Nalgona Positivity Pride emerged out of a great need not only to shed light on the experiences and barriers that exists in Black Indigenous communities of color affected by body image and troubled eating, but also to create opportunities of healing by and for Black and Indigenous communities of color. Today on the podcast, we have Gloria Lucas, who specializes in intersectional eating disorder education and resources that transform the lives of Black and Indigenous people of color, individuals, and expand eating disorder treatment models. And she is also the founder and the CEO of Nalgona Positivity Pride. And as such, she raises awareness through digital media, public speaking, and grassroots activism. So welcome to the podcast, Gloria. Thank you for having me. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you just, you know, what has been your favorite healing practice during this quarantine since it's been a good minute that we've been um, cooped up Yeah, you know, for me, it has been discovering my love for plants, indoor plants primarily. Um, that has been very nurturing for my life. And I would say resting, prioritizing rest has been very beneficial in my life right now. So you got some new plantitas at home? Yeah, yeah. I had no plants before. I didn't even notice them before. <laughs> so quarantine allowed me to slow down and and stop and breathe and notice other life forms <laughs> do you do you, are you one of those folks that like talks to them les cariñitos or not not quite there yet yeah yeah i do do that play some jazz for them 
as well. That's amazing. Um, I'm sure they're really happy. I know that I noticed that with my plantita too. I was like, oh, you're so sad. I just repotted you. And then I started giving it like a kiss in the morning and talking to it. And then it really did just transform. So I've known it's alive, but it's like, oh, wow, you really do respond to love, you know, like all of us. just wanted to one begin by um naming how much i love your platform how much i love all that you've created a lot of us feel as though uh it is completely um acceptable quote unquote normalizing you know self-love in a lot of ways for a lot of us uh, latinas and a lot of us uh folks are often being compared with this really off colonial standard of beauty that's one and then also to really normalize um what has been named as as disordered eating we know is above and beyond that which is really more of a, a very long history of our people's story of, of food and colonialism and so i wanted to ask you about the connection between our own story and that of our own ancestors within the broader story of colonialism and our experiences around disordered eating i I um I recently took your historical trauma and eating disorders uh, lesson webinar teaching, and and what that connection is, and I was really deeply moved, and I learned a lot. And um, please, everybody out there, take the course. It's on the Nalgona Positively Pride website, and um, it's two hours of really valuable knowledge and wisdom. And so I wanted to to ask you about. Um, uh, but telling us a little bit more about this connection and lifting up some of these sort of historical trends or understanding that you have. Yeah, thank you so much for for supporting and, and attending. You know, when we look at the food in our plate, if we get to have food in our plate, right, and our thoughts and feelings, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, these are all political. And, you know, these turbulent experiences are by no means individualistic stories, but rather collective experiences and historical trauma as well as intergenerational trauma teaches us that when we are born, you know, we aren't born with a clean slate and our environment that we are raised in are all products of history, capitalism, and trauma. And so when we look at eating disorders inside marginalized communities, such as Black, Indigenous, and communities of color, we know that eating disorders are complex conditions that are tied to social oppression. The violent historical events in the West, such as chattel slavery, displacement of Indigenous and African peoples, genocide, sexual exploitation, ethnocide, spiritual suppression environmental degradation, I mean, the list goes on, right, make up for some of the most, if not the most atrocious holocausts. And so communities that experienced and witnessed and survived these unspeakable, unspeakable acts did not come out unaffected. It does leave a residual psychological effects. And so 
There are many ways of breaking down the effects of colonialism and white supremacy on food, medicine, and body image. Right? When we look at the long history of food insecurity that many indigenous groups face, um, may it be due to the destruction of indigenous crops by colonial environmental degradation, the many forced relocations, the establishment of reservations, and how officials would cut food supply to reservations as forms of punishment and control, such as signing unfair treaty agreements. On top of poverty, you know, we do know that food insecurity is a factor, can be a factor in the development of eating disorders. So we see that history right in front of us, right, with people in our communities, particularly Native Americans, right, having higher rates of disordered eating and or full-blown eating disorders. And we see this these trends historically, like what is the background story here? And, you know, if we look at Indigenous and Black body image, we look at Black and Indigenous and or Indigenous women who once came from societies that honored and held women sacred, even so much so that there was goddesses that resembled them back in their homes, you know, coming to be hated, controlled, sexually exploited, and spiritually degraded by patriarchal white Christianity. You know, we cannot speak about colonialism without speaking about sexual violence. These subjects are permanently married. And in order for colonialism to thrive past and present, women have to be broken down and made not human. And so this sexual violence permeates till this day. How does this inform Black women and Indigenous women to love themselves? It doesn't, right? And so the legacies of colonial colonialism are what make up current institutions and systems of power where inequality and violence continue to repeat these cycles of abuse and visibility and equality. And many times eating disorders develop as a way to cope with unresolved grief. And many times we are seeking healing from traumas that we have no stories or language for. And so colonialism continues being an active process of domination that makes it very difficult to have support, language, and resources. And that actually makes me wonder, given that you talked about people's stories and the the DNA and the historical trauma, transgenerational trauma that we still embody, um, some of it doesn't even feel like this lifetimes, although there's plenty of reasons why this lifetime would give us the reason to grieve, the reasons to, you know, to be heartbroken or to be traumatized or, you know, the racism and homophobia and, and, and poverty and all of this. But there's also, um, you know, ancestral legacy of trauma, just like there is an ancestral legacy of resilience. And so many times um, we might embody some of that legacy of, of shame uh, or of grief, or all these other things that we might not even be able to fully explain in words, but we know what it feels like to uh, embody 
um, or to long for, right? Or to still have that energy running through us as you, as you explain uh, from the long history of, of colonialism. And so I'm curious about your story and how your story is tied to this beautiful project that you gave a birth uh, to. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a person still struggling with an eating disorder and my unwholesome relationship to food began when I was 10 years old. I first struggled with binge eating disorder, which is the most common eating disorder in the U.S. that is prevalent in Black Indigenous communities of color. At 17, I developed bulimia. And being daughter of immigrants, having a Mexican Indigenous background, being raised in a home where there was food stress, I never really saw this story. And my journey in receiving professional help is one with many bumps until this day. And um, in this journey, I wanted to know why I had developed an eating disorder because media portrayed eating disorders as a white girl problem uh, with an abundance of support resources. So why did I, who had ha- has had the opposite experience of this, uh, ex- developed an eating disorder? And this is where I dived a little bit deeper and started connecting the dots. At that time, I had I was learning about post-traumatic slave syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGru. Um, I had known about historical trauma. And, you know, I just started linking, you know, all these things together. And um, because what was out there did not really analyze race uh, and oppression as factors uh, that make up an eating disorder. And I just felt that it, it was every the information that was out there was not speaking to me at all. And so I just started connecting all of this. And I knew that I had to share this with others because it gave me answers and it provided me with clarity. And I think that when you're going through trauma or you're going through a chaotic, you know, dysfunctional coping mechanism, like clarity is is helpful. And so um, that's when I began giving talks, you know, and I, and from there, that's how Nalgona Positivity Pride grew. admit that um, I felt empowered to be more honest and open about my own struggles with, you know, my own disordered eating uh, and the um, very intense nine years that I had through high school and college. I I felt much more empowered to be honest um, and vulnerable about it with my close friends. I think my partner was really clear about this history and had talked about it extensively, but there's so much stigma also um, tied to it. And you're right. The way that it, it it's talked about, and I remember it being talked about in the 90s, was this like a white girl problem. And even the shows where folks, you know, would get put in these uh, health centers uh, for support and clinics that somebody who was able to have the resources to be able to get the support under a model that probably wouldn't, or who knows, I don't know if it would work for communities of color, gender nonconforming people and, you know, folks um, in communities of color, indigenous communities, black communities. And so I think that um, 
there's so much to unpack and how this shows up in our community, why it shows up in our community and the way in which it can be approached um, within our community. But before we go there, I actually um, wanted to take us back a little bit to some of the history you named. There is, you know, such a phobia of, of fatness that is very deeply rooted in the U.S. and for all the reasons that you stated. But one thing that was, I thought, you know, a breakthrough for me in understanding and following your work and, and attending the workshop is that I would also argue in, in Latin America, not just the United States, because I definitely, um, you know, I, I grew up to be 10 years old in, in Mexico, migrated here. And I felt like I, I saw it even at early age in, in Mexico. And I know that most Latinx people or folks with roots in Latin America could probably share stories of family members naming and shaming others or, you know, or maybe they shaming them around weight, but also pointing out your looks and your hair and just like an overemphasis, right. Um, on, on how you look. And I personally think that, that this happens as consistently in families, I would say, at least in my experience as, as pointing out, you know, shades of skin color, right? Favoring whiteness and making indigeneity and blackness quote unquote ugly or, you know, setting people back. Uh, everybody wants to move towards whiteness. And I feel like people want to move to thinness, you know? And one thing that um, you emphasize or you brought up is about thinness and the diet culture not being um, about health, but something that is rooted in the history of anti-blackness and the history of, of the fetishizing um, of thinness. And so I was, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that analysis about uh, how it's rooted in anti-blackness. Yeah, I, I really have to give credit here to Sabrina Strings, who wrote Freeing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And, you know, in this book, um, she argues of two historical developments that contributed to, to fat phobia, and one being the transatlantic slave trade and the spread of Protestantism. And, you know, racial scientific rhetoric about slavery linked fatness to greedy Africans. And so religious discourse suggested that overeating was ungodly. And I believe it's part of like one of the Ten Commandments, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and in the U.S., fatness became stigmatized as both black and sinful. And by the early tw 20th century, slenderness was increasingly promoted as the correct embodiment for white Protestant women. And so phobia about fatness was not principally about health. It wasn't. It became uh, if it, this fear was due to the imagined fat black woman. Um, and this was all created to both degrade black women and discipline white women. And so elites are constantly working to differentiate themselves from the lower class. And in doing so, they cultivate different tastes, diets and physical appearances that are in opposition to those of subordinated groups. So fat phobia became a tool for social distinctions and also um, establishing anti-blackness. And in Christy Harrison's new book, Anti-Diet, she talks about 
uh, during the industrialization period when immigrant populations increased in larger cities, the emerging white middle class uh, was looking for ways to also assert and maintain a dominant position to the new immigrants and body size became a point of comparison. And so a middle-class American citizen wanted to be different than that of the quote-unquote stout, sturdy immigrant body. So not only is it anti-Black, is it uh, is, is fatphobia embedded in white supremacy Christianity, but it's also anti-immigrant. Um, and so, again, it's not about health. And, I, you know, I've just been thinking more and more about this this stress around fatness and how a lot of it is also linked to capitalism. Like capitalism has infected this idea of bodies, all people, all bodies need to be producing 100% of the time. And, you know, the, these myths about fat folks of being, quote unquote, unproductive, of being lazy, of not being capable, of being slower, whatever it might be, right? It really alerts the mind that has been influenced by capitalism, right? So there's also that layer of productivity um, that it's also linked to ableism, right? The same issue why folks with disabilities are disregarded and ignored and pushed aside in this, in this society, right? Um, it's all linked to the cap, the pressures of capitalism to always be productive. And so, yeah, there's just so many layers to, to fat phobia. And here we are 2021 20, still having these ideas and treating fat folks or folks with other, you know, identities differently because of our own brainwashing, essentially. Shame is a tool of the oppressor. And if we are able to embody shame in everything we are, in comparison to the straight, white, cisgendered uh, male, <laughs> then um, everything is othered. Um, and then there's just, you know, a hierarchy of a hierarchy, a human hierarchy, um, based on that. And, um, but the, the shame piece, I think is something that stood out a lot during your curso, uh, as a really deeply, deeply seated, uh, feeling, um, emotion, uh, almost like a practice inside of our tissues and our being that I think is, um, so important to figure out how to tend to uh, in our healing process and be able to transform. Um, and I think that that is obviously a lifetime of work and lifetimes, perhaps, given how long this legacy of, you know, colonialism uh, that has established, you know, who is worthy, who is valuable, who is um, beautiful, who is all of those things. The concept of, of eating disorder is, is highly stigmatized. As someone who, who struggled deeply myself, um, there's so much shame, as I was saying, around naming it, around any of it, especially in our communities. And it's, it's also something that, like, I kind of compare it a little bit to miscarriages, um, you know, the way that folks don't don't name some of that, um, or or seek community, um, like depression or other 
issues uh, that our folks end up sitting in shame or isolation with. And so I know that you all have politicized this um, in a way that because it has been deeply depoliticized, like you named, and, and really separated from the context of the broader systems of oppression. So I'm curious about, you did name a bit of some of your critiques around the, like the Western model of, of really healing uh, some of this. Uh, and I'm curious what, if, what other critiques you might have about this Western model and then what you envision is a more holistic model, um, given that it's so complex. Eating disorder treatment was never made for people like myself in mind, period. <laughs> and that's the reason why people like myself continue to have so many barriers to professional help. I just feel like eating disorder treatment as a whole has a lot of work to get done. For, for me, myself, like I just feel that community, creating that supportive community is is key here because essentially that's what how we have been healing for thousands of years is in community, not being put in resort-like institution for treatment and no shame for folks that need that and can get that. But the reality is that the majority of us cannot have access to that. And so I feel like there's this very binary view of eating disorder. Healing is either you have an eating disorder or you don't. There's no middle ground. And the pressure's always on 100% abstinence from eating disorder behavior. And I feel like this overlooks the fact that marginalized communities continue to be injured by oppression. And so it's very difficult for many folks to get to this place of 100% abstinence. I, I, I'm one of those people. And so for me, it, it's, it's important to center harm reduction in eating disorder treatment. You know, when I first started with harm reduction, I, I don't think there was a lot of people interested. Um, but now it, it's been changing a lot, especially since folks have had to um, quarantine. Like, how can you not, how can you be 100% abstinent from disordered eating when you're stuck in your home, if you have a home? Right. And if you have food, I just really hope that after, you know, for the most part, have overcome the harsh consequences and effects of COVID, that people are still interested in harm reduction. And, you know, harm reduction, steps for better, for worse, that, you know, people are going to have very chaotic coping skills. And one of them being an eating disorder. This is the way people cope. So instead of looking at eradicating that behavior, it looks at everything else around it to get that person to a safer place in their, as they still struggle with that behavior, right? I mean, it's been used in the sex work model, such as decriminalizing sex work, such as um, providing condom negotiation skills with sex work, right? That's, that's, those are forms of harm reduction. And also with drug use, that's just providing um, clean needles in communities, um, safe injection sites, and the list goes on. Right now, when it comes to eating disorders, right, this, these are like at-home, easier techniques to deal with the symptoms associated with eating disorders and long-term long-term effects with eating disorders, such as dental care, dental oral care, supplements that can help prevent heart failure from having an eating disorder. Ultimately, harm reduction gives power back to people most affected by by these coping skills and it gives them a, a voice. That's that's mainly the approach that I'm I'm coming from is that it has to be in the streets, right? Like 
healing has to be in the streets. It doesn't it doesn't all happen inside therapy rooms. And I'm not saying that don't go to therapy. I go to therapy, you know, like I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying like we have to start breaking down these walls that only that limit the way healing looks like. And and that healing is not like this tada before and after thing. I don't see it that way. We need, I think that that's very harmful and that we need to look at how do we still love and care for people who will continue engaging in these harmful behaviors. And that is based in perfectionism, which is a product of white supremacy. And perfectionism is a big characteristic in the eating disorder community. It's tied to eating disorders. And so, um, again, we get back to the root problem of it all. And I, I do believe that you can get to a better place. Like just looking at my own harm reduction steps that I do for myself is what's keeping me afloat. And it's, it's helping me. For this week's Mística y Medicina, I'm sharing a home cleansing ritual from Aifa tradition. Many indigenous traditions believed in clearing spaces and energy with smoke. I wish I knew more about why. In my experience, smoke is powerful and with the right ingredients can be activated and be even more powerful. This ritual is to cleanse the negativity from your home. In my tradition, negativity is any emotion that creates imbalance, which remains in a space or a person. We are meant to feel challenging emotions, but they're not meant to stay for the long term, in our bodies and in our homes. When they stay or we are stuck in them, they can wreak havoc, fester and grow because we feed into them. This could look like ongoing conflict, sadness, feelings of being trapped, hopelessness, frustration, confusion, and so on. This ritual moves out this energy from your home or your space and can create a clean slate and renewal. The first step is to do a deep clean of your house. Scrub everything down, every room. Sweep under every bed and piece of furniture. Scrub what needs to be scrubbed Wipe down whatever needs to be wiped. Wash, dust, and organize your space or spaces that feel cluttered. Clutter and cluttered spaces create cluttered minds. The ingredients are one guinea pepper pod. You can find these at your local African store or shop. Break it open, put all the seeds into a container one bottle of black peppercorns, the regular size sold in the spice aisle at your local market, two teaspoons of cayenne pepper, and any type of ashes. It could be from wood or charcoal or whatever has been burnt and ashes remain. Take all these ingredients and grind them all together in a container. Ideally use a mortar 
molcajete, pilon, until it's a fine powder. But use whatever you have that can grind them enough to become a fine paste. Next, ensure that all the windows and doors of the space you're in are wide open. This is both for the energy to flow out that you're trying to clear and also because it's going to get pretty smoky and the smoke is going to be pretty pungent and strong. Please turn off your smoke alarms for the duration of the ritual. Ensure that all other folks are not in the space unless they really want to be. If there are any people or you yourself have asthma or other respiratory issues, it is best that you do not do this ritual or those folks are not involved in the ritual to not trigger any type of respiratory reaction. Next, light one ember. It could be a piece of wood or charcoal and make sure it's hot and lit and put in the container with the grinded ingredients. This should produce smoke. Once the smoke starts to come out, begin with the room in the back of the house or the rooms in the back of the house, and then continue clearing and cleaning them with the smoke, blowing into the smoke, or use your hands to sort of move the smoke around the space so that it gets every corner and every area in the rooms that you're gonna be walking through. That way you continue until you move to the front part of the house and throughout the entire house. Just continue to blow on that smoke or move it with your hands as you walk around spaces. And as you're doing that, pray for specific negativities in your house to go, to go away, to dissipate, to leave your house, leave your space. In my tradition, the four big challenges are death, affliction, contention, and loss. So those are always really good to try and move out of your space. But you can also pray for whatever might be around that you identify and feel. Anger, frustration, depression, confusion. For all of that to leave your space. Leave your house for a couple hours after you're done. So the intensity of the peppers that you just burnt and created smoke with can leave before you return and you can breathe easily. Don't forget to turn your smoke detectors back on. For all the great Nalgona Positivity Pride chisme, news, and upcoming events, visit nalgonapositivitypride.com and sign up for their newsletter. Make sure you follow them on Instagram at Nalgona Positivity Pride and on Twitter at Nalgona Pride. La Cura is a donor-supported free resource. To continue our work and ensure we launch another season and many more after that, we are raising $5,000 by May 25th. I know we can do it together. Can you pitch in and make sure we continue our journey at the intersections of health, healing, and collective transformation? Thank you in advance for your support. We'll send you virtual offerings in our donors-only newsletter to support your journey in your communities. 
join me at mihente.net forward slash la cura. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. A very special thanks to Phil Circus for all his support and guidance on all aspects of production of this new season for La Cura. Thank you, Phil.